Hello and welcome to the Moz Talk Podcast. This is Connor O'Boyle. Today I'll be speaking with composer and teacher Alan Belkin. Alan is now a retired professor at the University of Montreal. He is still an active composer and has composed a wealth of music, including eight symphonies, four string quartets, violin and piano concerti, and much more. He has published several books on composition, harmony and counterpoint. We talk a little about his new book, Musical Composition, Art and Culture. Alan is an extremely gifted and knowledgeable teacher who has a YouTube series where he posts full courses, for example, on analysis, counterpoint, modern harmony. We get into some of his areas of expertise, including counterpoint, harmony, orchestration, finding your voice, and much more. So without further delay, I give you Alan Belkin. Uh, Okay, so I am here with Alan Belkin. Alan, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. So um, a lot of people probably will know who you are, but for those that don't, um, I was wondering if you could just take a couple of minutes and kind of define how you would describe yourself, your background, and uh, how you think about music and how you think about yourself as a composer. Okay. that That's a lot of stuff at one shot. So just for myself, I mean, I think I'm basically a composer and a teacher. Okay, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an active composer. I have eight symphonies, four quartets, and so on and so forth. And I'm still composing. And I've also for a long time been teaching. Uh, I taught for a long time at the University of Montreal. Now I'm retired, but I do lots of teaching by Skype, just, you know, in, in person. So, you know, and it's basically what people will think of as classical composition. Uh, I've got a lot of students who do mu- movie music or music for, vi- music for video games. But the stuff that I do personally and the stuff that I teach is basically sort of standard classical composition and the craftsmanship that goes with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, that's, and as, as a composer, I would say that in a certain sense, I see myself as part of a tradition. I don't see myself as breaking from the tradition. I would say in the same sense that somebody like Shostakovich is, you know, Shostakovich belongs in the symphonic tradition. He has his own voice, but I mean, you know, it's it certainly, you, you can't understand Shostakovich if you've never heard symphonies classical composers or by 19th century composers. So he's coming from there. So in the same sense, I think I'm coming a little bit from that symphonic tradition. And that's the kind of stuff that I do. I mean, I write symphonies. I don't write uh, program music. I don't write film music personally. So, you know, that that's sort of basically my orientation. And for teaching, I, I happen to believe that most serious music, and by serious, I don't mean classical, but I mean music that's not just fooling around. I mean, anything, even good music for a video game or for a film, requires a certain kind of craftsmanship that's pretty much the same as for classical music. So that's what I'm interested in. You know, well, I mean, I've spent a lot of time learning it, and I'm interested in showing it to others. And it's, you know, a kind of thing I think there's really no end to it. So when I say I feel like I'm part of a tradition, part of it is that I can still open a score by Brahms and find I have stuff to learn. And that's a wonderful feeling. It's really nice to feel like there's all this stuff out there that I don't know, and I can still learn it. I would hate to feel like I learned everything and didn't know it, didn't could learn anything every more. Anymore. So that, you know, that, that's sort of a large uh, overall, I would like to make, sort of describes a little bit who I'm at and what I'm, what, who I am and what I'm doing. Okay, that's great. Um, so you are very much in, in that sort of classical tradition, but I think now uh, classical is such a broad spectrum. It covers so many centuries that we're not really confined to... Uh, you know, even orchestral music, you know, you've got, um, you know, experimental um, electronic music, you know, in the mid 20th century, uh, which could be, I think, is taught in 
classical conservatoires and universities. So um, you come out of a a strict tradition, obviously, that starts with Haydn and goes through, you know, several different um, upheavals through Beethoven and, you know, Brahms and Shostakovich right up to the present day. So what led you to, um, you know, to follow in that particular path as opposed to, you know, opera or any other avenue that you possibly could have uh, find yourself composing in right. That, that was you know that gets me into a little bit of my musical background. So I mean, I started piano very young. I was I don't know eight or nine. Mm-hmm. I just heard some records at home of I think it was Beethoven Concerti. Remember Beethoven Fifth Concerto was the first piece I sort of fell in love with. I mean, I was eight years old. I was just I went bonkers over that piece. Uh, at one point, I, I went to a music store here in Montreal and asked for the score. He was a, like seven or eight year old asking for a score. The woman says. You want the simplified version? I said, no. <laughs> so I took the regular score, and, you know, I, I haven't stopped since. So mm-hmm. I started piano at age 11 or so. I piano lessons for about nine years. Around 13 years old, I kind of realized I wanted to compose something, but, I mean, I didn't know anything. But I just sort of I wrote uh, two piano concertos. One of them I called is the Schumann Concerto, and the other one is the Greek Concerto. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I was sort of imitating pieces I really like. Around about 15 or 16, I kind of realized that in the same way that I needed a teacher to show me piano technique, I needed somebody to show me, a, you know, composition technique. So I, through various, you know, I managed to find a local teacher who was very, very good. His name was Marvin Dusha, really a very, very generous man. And I studied privately with him doing harmony and counterpoint for a couple of years. So that kind of gave me, you know, the basis. At least I sort of began to feel like... You know, I wasn't totally disconnected. I, I, I had some idea what I was doing and where I was coming from. Mm-hmm. But at that point, I, you know, it wasn't mature composition, but it was just sort of laying the groundwork. Uh, I didn't do anything about orchestration. He wasn't really teaching orchestration. At that point, I didn't know anybody who could teach orchestration. Then around early 20s, I switched from piano to organ for a variety of reasons, not important. So I started you know, playing the organ because I was just fascinated by Bach. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that was the fact that so many of my early musical activities when I was a performer, and I mean, I played piano music, chamber music, and so on, with, you know, with violinists, cellists, all kinds of people. So that, in a way, gave me a kind of introduction to orchestration because I was playing with all these people, and the best way to know it is to play music with them. So I got to know a lot of the chamber music repertoire. Really, it wasn't until I was about 28 that I found the kind of composition teacher I needed. Before that, I'd gone to university, but they were trying to get me into stuff like Stockhausen, which I just mm-hmm. had no whatsoever. So I didn't really continue that composition stuff. And then finally, through a friend, uh, somebody connected to me to David Diamond, who was teaching at Juilliard at that time. Uh, and then I, various things happened. And I ended up doing a doctorate at Juilliard. And they were much more open to the kind of music I wanted to write, which was basically symphonic music. In other words, my, my beginnings as a performer sort of, I would say, connected me into what I would call the classical tradition. And I just lost the music. I mean, I just wanted to write some of it myself. Yeah. You know, so and that, that was the earliest thing. Then, uh, unlike, you know, when I was studying and they were trying to convince me to write like Stockhausen, which, as I say, I had no interest in, Juilliard, they were much more, first of all, craft-oriented, like you expect to be able to do something well. Mm-hmm. And then they gave out what, to me, was a much more, I would say, a more useful notion, which was instead of thinking in terms of being original and that was different, in terms of finding your own voice. Yeah. So, you know, since there's a Judah and that, and that made sense to me. So I spent three years studying with David Diamond, and I had a few lessons with Elliot Carter. So, you know, when I got the doctorate, I think I'd had a pretty good background overall. I might have wished, I, wished I'd found good composition teachers 10 years earlier, but at least I found them. Yeah. And that was, you know, 
training at Juilliard was really it was professional training, and that's exactly what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. So by that point, beginning a career as a composer, I was still playing organ, a little bit of piano, but mostly organ at that point. So you know, and then I got a job teaching at the University of Montreal. And one of the nice things about teaching is it's a great way to learn. There's what I call the, uh, there's a basic rule of pedagogy, which says if you're teaching a subject and if you know 90% of the subject, for sure a student will ask you something about the 10% you don't know. Okay, <laughs> I, find, I find that kind of rule. So, but the nice thing is, you know, questions that I got asked in those few years, I was sort of thinking like, yeah, what is the answer to that question? Mm. So it would get me looking. I, you know, often would find my own answers to these questions because not all of them had been answered before. So it sort of got me to the point where I just wanted, you know, I have a, you know, a little rule that I say, a little principle that I say when I'm teaching music. I said no rules without reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, people talk about no tips and no this, but I mean, if there's no reasons, you, you're just following blindly like a disciple. I don't think that's what's the point. So, you know, having had a good education and teaching forced me to start thinking about, well, why does something, why do we teach it this way as opposed to that way? It's not just an accident. You know, so anyway, that got me thinking about things in a different way. And combined with the training, I finally did get, I thought it was in my 30s, I was sort of off on my own, beginning on my own, my own path. So, you know, was my background in music was so much tied to the music that I loved as a pianist. I loved Chopin, I loved Rachmaninoff, I loved Prokofiev, all that stuff. You know, and it was just sort of natural. Yeah, I want to write some of that stuff too. I mean, that, that was, you know, and of course, that I got interested in symphonic repertoire and so on, or Brahms, Mahler, and so on. So I just, that's just, I just wanted to be part of that. I, I've never been particularly interested in or sympathetic to people uh, who want to leave the tradition behind. I understand why. Like after the Second World War, a lot of people felt like, well, you know, the German music tradition was tied with the Nazis and so on. Mm-hmm. But I didn't see it. And I just, I, you know, <clears throat> feel like, you know, I felt like I had roots and it didn't bother me. And I just wanted to make my own path in that way. So Juilliard was what made me, you know, made me into more of a pro as far as that goes. So that, that, I think that's what sort of got me in the path that I was on, <clears throat> the path that I'm still on now, I mean, I've had various ups and downs, but that's, you know, that's, I think, where I still go, and I have no problem being part of that. And my teachers at Juilliard helped me find my own voice, so see, mm-hmm. that took a while, but they emphasized that in addition to the craft. So that was really what got me going, and uh, I'm still at it. That's that's fantastic. It's you're Actually, uh, the, my introduction to the, the repertoire as well was via Beethoven, so... Uh, we have we have that yeah. in common. <laughs> I think I think a lot of a lot of people um, first fell in love with with a uh, with a Beethoven uh, piece of music. For me, it was the uh, the Seventh Symphony. Uh, yeah, yeah, just, that's a biggie. <laughs> yeah, the, the, those open those opening bars just had me hook, line, sinker. I was you know there was no sure. there was no going back after that. But um, yeah. talk talk to me about the the method. Uh, of education, so obviously you talked about you know looking, looking at scores and studying how the composers uh, achieve right. what they did, you know, f- by looking at their work. I, am, I imagine that the education has um, somewhat shifted in the past twenty five years. Uh, you know, obviously you being a teacher, you you would be able to testify to this. But you know, right. with the rise of technology and computers and you know, uh, sure. software like Sibelius and things. I, I imagine that you would have been a pencil and paper and uh, you would have learned that way. Right, sure, yeah. I, I had to write full scores out in on paper. And I remember when I had my first orchestra reading at Juilliard, having to make a little change in the parts, adding one bar was just hell. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the kind of thing in notation software, it's trivial, but if you have yep. to add one bar to the orchestra piece and redo all the parts to add that one bar, 
It's mm-hmm. really, you know, not a lot of fun. So that it's nice that those things have changed. Other things have changed too. I mean, certainly now it's possible to do a really nice mock-up. I mean, you know, in those days, let's face it, not too many of us have an orchestra handy at home. Yeah. Right. I certainly, I'm not that kind of rich. I wasn't certainly wasn't then either. I could do that. So now the fact that it's possible to do a really good mock-up, that definitely helps. I mean, I, expe- I would spend a fair amount of time now doing a good mock-up of a piece mm-hmm. as you can make something that really can give a good idea of it. It's not, you know, it doesn't sound like finale playing, uh, you know, metronome style. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's the, the technology has been enormous. There are other technological things that have less concerned me. I mean, I'm not a film composer. Obviously, for film composers, there's a whole lot of stuff concerning the visual and the, and the musical, but that's not really something I've had much to do with. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's made a huge But the other difference, which is also, a, you know, it's a big difference, is that now, when I was when I was studying music, we're talking, you know, in the 1970s, 1980s, at, those, at that point, if you wanted to study whatever, counterpoint or composition, you had to find a teacher who was local. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just... And if you didn't find a good teacher locally, you're pretty much stuck. I mean, when I did my doctorate at Juilliard for various personal reasons that aren't important, I actually had to commute there. I went there once a week for four years. Okay, every you know, I go for one day, leave in the morning, come back late at night because I had I needed the job that I had here to be able to pay for my trips there. Yeah. Well, nowadays when I get students from all over the world, and you know, we talk on Skype or you know, WhatsApp or whatever, WhatsApp, and it's just it's a different thing. The the good thing about it now is that the competition is no longer the guide on the block. The competition is the really good people. Mm. So if you're good, if you do and you're serious, I mean, I'm taking, for example, of Thomas Goss, who runs the orchestration online group on Facebook, like yep. 30,000 people. It's a very good group. I mean, you know, he couldn't do that if he were just your average guy. Thomas is a very unusual guy who really knows his stuff more than the average. I mean, most of the people I know who teach the same subjects locally here aren't as good as Thomas is. So, you know, that in those days was unavailable. So now it is, and that means if you if you find that you want to study with Mr. X or Ms. Y, now it's possible, you know, by long distance, which it, it just wasn't then. Mm-hmm. So I think that, it, that favorizes the good teachers and it screws the bad ones, but that doesn't bother me. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. My my, my question know? my question is is um, do you think that the not the quality but the 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 nuance of composition has changed? Because of the introduction of technology, where you you would have spent time imagining, uh, you know, what that instrument would sound like, and and you would you know have a the more you did it, the the, the sharper your uh, intuitions would be. Whereas you know, I, I sometimes I feel that you get a kind of the case of the a dog or a tail wagging the dog here, where you're being guided compositionally by the technology as opposed to you know how the classical masters would have done it they would have just had so much control that they would have been able to you know manipulate the music in whatever way they saw fit right well the thing is i mean it's certainly true i mean some of for example i have one student who writes music for video games Mm -hmm. he says that often what he gets is a midi file from somebody who play who can't write music who played it on a MIDI keyboard using a bones patch or something, mm-hmm. and they're doing things that some bones could never play in a hundred years, but they just sort of plunk it on the keyboard. Yeah. So that's the extreme, and you even have occasional movie music composers who can't even read music very well. That said, in, in any kind of serious situation, those people have hired arrangers and orchestrators to do the job for them. And I certainly think that, you know, John Williams or somebody like that who does have a serious 
sort of composing background, in my opinion, is way, way superior mm-hmm. to somebody else. I mean, John Williams uses orchestrators sometimes, but he's capable of doing it himself. So he, you know, he can give you an idea. Somebody who doesn't know anything all, anything about it, I mean, he's sort of stuck with what other people do. Mm-hmm. Certainly as a classic composer, I'm not interested in that at all. Yeah. I mean, and, and I would say that, you know, again, the fact of being able to do mock-ups is really important now because, you know, I had a bunch of orchestra readings when I was at Juilliard, but I mean, to learn the kind of stuff that I've learned from mock-ups, I would have needed hundreds of readings, not, not like five or six, mm. and hundreds of readings. So most people don't have access to an orchestra to that extent. So, you know, in, in that way, the technology has changed it. And it's like any tool, you know, it can be used for good or for bad. If the person thinks they're a great musician because they bang out a few chords on a MIDI keyboard, well, they have a lot to learn. <laughs> on the other hand, if you're, you're using the tools for what they give you, and if you at the same time realize, you know, like even to make a good mock-up, you have to know what it should sound like. I mean, it yeah. gives you an idea, yes, but you have to know. If you put the flute started in the trombones, well, that's not realistic. Yeah. You have to know that. I mean, if you listen, listen to finale and the clarinet sounds louder than the trombone, and if you don't know what it is, you just figure that's true. Well, that's yeah. baloney. Yeah. You, know, you just have to learn. So, you know, it's like any tool. It depends what you do with it, but it can be wonderful. And it, certainly, I've seen no end of people, including myself, who have used it and learned a ton from that stuff. But, you know, it's kind of changed. I mean, so, you know, but, but you know, I still get plenty of students who eventually want to write for video games or for, for classical, you know, for, for films, I should say, but they want a classical background. Uh, that's still quite common. And, you know, I'm happy to provide that sort of thing for those people. As I still believe that the best people, even in commercial music, know what they're doing. They're yep. not just bang out something on a keyboard. Um, anyway, so, you know, that's how I see it. So part of my job, I think, is to give some of those people uh, the background. And one of the nice things about it is once you have the background, you can appreciate classical music more. Mm. I mean, when you see how Beethoven handles, let's say, transitions, you never tried to write a transition yourself. You might not realize, like, boy, this guy really has some interesting ideas about transitions. Mm-hmm. But once you've started it yourself, it's like, okay, wow, this is really something. So that's a side effect, you know, the learning this stuff, you start start appreciating what's really good about some of these composers, the, the greater composers. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let, let's take it back to um, actual, we'll talk about some compositional techniques. Um, yeah. you, you said that you became interested in Beethoven first and then you found Bach, is that right? Yeah, yeah. But, well, I mean, I knew Bach already, but when I started playing it on the organ, I mean, I sort of developed an intimate acquaintance. I, I played most of the Bach organ music in you know, mm-hmm. my years as a this. You know, it just gave me, it, it, you know, there's, there's passively getting to know music and actively. Yeah. You know, if you're passively, you can listen to it and that's fine. You can even watch with the score. But it's a whole other thing when you have to perform it yourself. Then you need to know it on a different level. Mm-hmm. And I think, in my opinion, a serious musician should be a practicing musician. It was... Analysis is fine, but just because you analyze doesn't make you a serious musician. Mm. Nothing against analysis, but I mean, somebody who can compose and or play, I, I tend to respect them more than somebody who just talks. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's kind of like uh, Bernstein was a big advocate. Yeah. You know, he was like when he was talking about his conducting teachers, he he used to say that he had one an Italian composer uh, who right. taught him conducting, and the the composer said, you know, things very abstractly, you know, it must be warm like the sun or, you know, th- mm-hmm. things like that. And then he had a Russian uh, conducting teacher who said, you know, stop, bar 72, beat three, second clarinet, what's the note? <laughs> well, the, the, I think a key to good teaching, and this is true in any field, is specific. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you go to a piano teacher and if all they have to say is, well, 
practice more and play it better. Well, frankly, you don't need to pay somebody to say that, mm-hmm. right? It's neat is the piano. You say, in this bar over here, this is too loud. Use this movement of your arm to make it better. Yep. So it's the same thing with posing. I mean, if all I can say to a student is, well, I don't know, it's not great, make it better. You know, they don't need me for that. My job is to say, okay, the problem here is the orchestration. This is too loud. That's too soft. Mm-hmm. And there's something in the harmony. So, I mean, specifics are everything. You know, I think an, an, only an amateur is content with, yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. Or that's lousy. Can't be specific. You're not a pro. You're an amateur. So, and I think that's true, not just in music, by the way. That's true, you know, yeah. that's true in pretty much all. So I think, you know, part of the, one of the ways a student can recognize a good teacher is, is the advice specific or is it very general? Uh, on my website, I have a letter called To a Young Composer I wrote many years ago. Basically, just a way to sort of warn some young composition students away from some of the kind of uh, traps of the trade. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, there's a composition teacher, and all who talk about is style. But at the same time, you have somebody who's never taken a counterpoint class. I mean, they're not ready to talk about finding their personal style. First, they have to know just how, how to write a simple counterpoint in two parts. Mm-hmm. That comes later. So if all the teacher can talk about is your aesthetics and your style, and you've never done anything craftsmanship, probably your teacher isn't the right teacher for you. Mm-hmm. You know, That stuff only comes way, way later. And it's not a substitute for craft. It's something that comes after craft. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the same way, if you wanted to write poetry in English, first learn the grammar. Yeah. You know, that doesn't mean that you know English grammar, you're a poet, but you're certainly not a poet if you don't know English grammar. That's for sure. That's actually really interesting. You know, the idea of control and how uh, in different disciplines and through the arts that what we expect as a prerequisite knowledge is super important and that music and language are very similar and that they share many commonalities and that music has been likened to language in terms of it has grammar, it has structure and it has syntax. And if you don't know, you don't to- if you don't know how to, how to phrase something or how to, yeah. you know, end a phrase with a cadence, or if you, if you don't know what the rules are, then you can't break them either, I guess. And it goes farther than that because even the rules, like if you talk about rules for cadence, well, the first question is, do we need cadences at all? Mm-hmm. And then you come to psychology. When I was in my 40s, I started doing a lot of reading about cognitive, cognitive psychology and mm-hmm. you know, cognitive neurology and so on. And a lot of things started coming clear. I mean, simple example out of, out of dozens you could give is that we can't pay equal attention to five things at the same time. right? You couldn't follow five conversations at the same time. Nobody can, right? Mm-hmm. Might be able to follow one and a half if you really if the half is not too busy. But I mean, the fact is, you know, evolution made us with priorities. One of those priorities is that there's always something in front and something in back. So mm-hmm. if you and I are talking or walking in the woods and you hear a lion roar, all of a sudden your attention is no longer on what I'm saying. But it's like I better get out of the way of this lion here, yeah, because we don't need to discuss anymore. So a lot of things like that, you sort of discover that the real reasons why some of those rules are the way they are is not because they're abstract things that were made up because there's actually sense to it. I mean, this kind of reason, the reason may not be something that's often stated in musical teaching, but there is a reason. Mm-hmm. So then it, then it becomes a matter of putting it in con. Like I said before, no rules without reasons. So part of my job as a teacher is even if I'm saying something really simple, like in first species, there are no dissonances. I have to explain that. And I don't mean just explain what a dissonance, I mean, why, did, why does that rule have any sense? In actual music, there are certainly dissonances. So we'd explain, well, from a pedagogical point of view, what you can't do is conservate a five things at the same time. Yep. So now we're just going to talk about the contours of the line and the ranges, and we're not going to worry about dissonance. That doesn't mean dissonance isn't worth talking about. It means we're just doing one thing at a time. Then we'll talk about dissonance later on. 
there are two kinds of rules, I would say. One of them is what I would call rules that are given by the nature of the situation. For example, on a violin, the lowest note is normally G. Mm-hmm. You could tune it and make it an F or something, but you can't make a G an octave lower. Mm-hmm. Not possible. So that's a rule, I would say, that's a reality-based rule. It's not negotiable. Other kinds of rules are pedagogical. Like you say something like, don't use dissonance in first species. That doesn't mean never use dissonance in your life. Yep. It just means in species, let's concentrate on something else. A lot of the confusion that people have is that the teachers don't make clear which is which. So, you know, if you, if you confuse a pedagogical rule, like people will study Bach counterpoint and say, yeah, but all these things that are in the rules, Bach, Bach breaks these rules. That's because they worked out the rules wrong. <laughs> okay, there are reasons to explain why, yeah, at the beginning you didn't work, you didn't look at this stuff, but later on you should be looking at this stuff. And if not, the teaching is sort of, sort of narrow. Uh, I don't know if you know, but, you know, my, my sort of the pedagogical background of what I taught, uh, what I teach, was from France. There are two French musical traditions. One of them is the, the tradition, uh, for example, Théodore Dubois, who was like Debussy's harmony teacher or something. Mm-hmm. Those people, it's like just a list of rules. Like this is r- rule number 33. You wrote the rule. You're a bad boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one came from Saint-Saëns and then Faure. And Faure was the teacher of Ravel. And he taught Nadia Boulanger, who in turn taught my teachers. Okay. It's a whole thing. It's a, very mu- it's a much more musical tradition. The one thing, for example, Boulanger would ask of her students, if they're doing counterpoint, sing and play. Don't mm-hmm. just write, right? sing one line, play the other one, then switch. Takes more time, but in a different way, you're making the music your own in a way you couldn't just by writing it down. Mm. It's kind of when you can sing it, you've proved that you can hear it in your head. If you can't sing it, you can't hear it. Yeah. So that training over a long period of time gets you thinking about music in a really different way. And you know, I mean, other co- other countries have that kind of training, but a good teacher will some. I think a good teacher should make pretty much everything you do feel relevant. So if it's if it's well taught, it can do that. So when you when you are composing or when you're sitting down to or when even you get a a theme or a a motif in your head, yeah. are you are you thinking about the the structures or the not the rules and or is it kind of like uh, I think it was Einstein that said you know education is what remains when you forget all you learned, so it mm-hmm. it becomes more like an internal thing where you're less preoccupied with, you know, uh, parallel fifths or, you know, permitted intervals and, 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 you know, this type of thing. And these things are kind of more internalized. And so you just are free then to focus on on other aspects like orchestration or texture or, you know, things like that. It's a little different from that. I mean, all those things like parallel fifths and orchestration, I mean, they, those like, for example, that rule about parallel fifths, I mean, that rule basically is designed to prevent the music having holes in it. Mm. That was if in the middle of a Bach-style piece, a parallel fifth is going to be sort of a dead moment, a kind of an empty moment. And when Debussy uses parallel fifths, he's consistent about it, so it's not a problem. What you don't want is two parallel fifths in the middle of something that sounds very rich and it's just going to sound like a mistake. Yeah. So, I mean, if you understand the rule right, like it's not like parallel fifths are evil, it's just like either use them in a consistent way or don't use them. Mm. You know, It's not a matter of morally bad. Uh, so uh, most of the rules can be understood like that. I was in, almost anything you can do in some situation will make sense. Okay, it might be might make musical sense, but you got to understand what's the situation that would make it make sense if you're going to do it. Mm. So in that sense, w- what happens is after you've spent a lot of time learning this stuff, I mean, 
it does become automatic and it says your ear is tuned in. So if I'm writing, let's say, a very dissonant texture and I find all of a sudden I have two chords in the middle and they seem very sort of blasted, usually it's because something could be parallel fifths or something along those lines is there. So, okay, I got to fix that. I just fix out for no good reason. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the principle of composition. Don't attract the listener's attention to something that isn't worth paying attention to. Right. Or that's going to sound like it was a mistake. So that part, I would say, has become automatic to me by this point. I call it my internal checklist. Mm-hmm. Whereas this, if I listen to a student's work or my own, there's a lot of stuff I'm going, I'm going through my checklist. Is it this, that, 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 that? I mean, but that checklist took many years to internalize. It didn't happen in two days. So mm. when I, that's already there. Obviously, a student doesn't have that before doing any work. You have to do something first before you get do a lot of training. What happens then is interesting. Like up to the time I went to Juilliard, I had this idea that when you wrote a piece, you started from bar one and you took it, took it the end. But then Mr. Diamond talked to me, and I sort of discovered something that is almost idiotically obvious, but it wasn't to me then which is that a lot of great composers don't start at the beginning. They start with an idea. If you look at Beethoven's sketches, the first sketch isn't always bar one. Now what I would do is I would just, first of all, I mean, assuming I know what kind of piece I want to write, am I aiming for a piano prelude that's two pages long or a symphony that's 40 minutes long? It's not the same thing. Mm. But with the framework of what I'm aiming at, I just start sketching. So the sketching could be little motives, little bits of harmony, could be a phrase, could be a rhythm. I mean, pretty much anything that comes at this point there's no point being critical. You just get as much stuff on paper as you can. Might, like I said, the idea here, the ideal here is to get a large pile of paper in front of you. Okay? You're not worrying about what's it going to go. Is it any good? You just you want to build up a pile of ideas. Mm-hmm. Once you've got that, that's the first step. At that point, you, you shouldn't be overly critical. Next step is you go through your pile of ideas, which will be proportional to the size of the piece. Then you start saying, okay, this one, nah, this is not so hot. I think I'm going to get rid of this one or save it for another piece. Then you go to another one and you say, this is great. And, you know, I kind of have this feeling that this one here, maybe that would go better after the one over there. Mm-hmm. So what you do is sketches and you start elaborating the sketches. So instead of one bar of a certain idea, now let's say we have 20 or, mm-hmm. or 30. So the sketches that I think are worth developing, I work on them. So, okay, now we have, let's say, a pile of sketches, but now it's not one bar. Now it's like a whole page worth of stuff. Okay, so then I'm saying, like, look at these sketches. Now, what order should I put this in? Well, i got to have a climax somewhere. The climax can't be right at the beginning. So I'm looking and saying, this might be a good man. Maybe, maybe this one make a good climax. I'm thinking about that. I'm looking and saying, so, you know, this would be really great after that. And maybe if I put this one instead. There was, then I'm trying out orders. There's a famous story about Travinsky. Somebody went, I think it was Elliot Carter, went into his, was visiting his house and went to his composing studio. And he saw Stravinsky had all these little pieces of paper on his composing desk. And he was sort of juggling around trying out different orders for them. <laughs> Maybe instead of that. It's kind of a cool idea because although it happens to fit Stravinsky's style very well, it's actually not a bad idea for anybody. Mm-hmm. That you just things out. You're, at that point, you're not too much committed. The more you go on, the more you get committed to a specific order of things. Uh, this goes well after that, and I need a transition to get from here to there. And the piece sort of takes on life from there. There was, I think it's a more organic thing because the form is developing out of your ideas rather than being something sort of an abstract jello mold and you're pouring the jello into. Now, now, that seems, of course, that somebody already knows what they're doing. Obviously, a beginner can't do that because they don't have any of the sort of reflexes. They don't have the fluency. But after a while, you kind of think, well, like, hmm, this could go well here. This could be a good climax compared to that. You know, you start thinking about the key points and you start seeing it. So, but at, at this point, what I do now is I, w- I would compose just by sketches. I wouldn't worry about it. Then I'd start putting things together. And then I'd sort of make a rough sketch of the whole piece. 
I'll listen to the whole thing. I think, yeah, needs more over here. The mm-hmm. build up to the, too short, let's say. So <clears throat> maybe I'll add 10 bars in the build up or something. Or I don't know, this contrast is too long, it's boring. So gradually you get more and more critical as you go on. And then at least in my case, what I usually do is once I get once I get to the end of the piece, I like to put it away for a few weeks and not think about it. Because mm-hmm. I find out the time I've, I've written the whole piece, I'm sort of in love with it. When you're in love is not when you usually get your most objective. So right. put the piece away for a few weeks. Then I try and listen to it. And especially the first hearing after I haven't heard it for a while is revealing. Because if then I say, mm, that over there, that's no good. Usually that means it's no good. Because mm. you know, I'm not in love anymore. It's like, no, that's okay, but this is not so hot. And from there on, you just keep revising and refining and revising and refining. Brahma said somewhere, you know, you just keep revising it and revising it and revising it until there's nothing you feel can, can improve. And when you're, you said obviously you you are a uh, a symphonist, yeah, or or not even symphonies in general. I, I imagine how how much would you ad- adhere to or or think about established forms? You know, um, your sonata forms or your ritornello forms or any of the the forms that composers have have adhered to, and you know, in some yeah. cases undermined. Or you know, how do you think about that when you're composing? Last year, I had a, a composition textbook published called uh, Musical Composition, Craft and Art mm-hmm. by Yale University Press. And in that book, what I did is uh, is that I have a chapter, let's say, about a general principle. Let's say, I'll call it connecting. Connecting is really how to do a transition. And then I'll have a chapter on transitions in classical repertoire. Mm. So I see classical forms as specific examples of bigger general principles. They're not, uh, Roger Sessions once said, uh, and, and correctly, that if you think about it, if you have any piece of any size, you're going to need some contrasting ideas. So it's going to get boring if you do the same thing. And if you have contrasting ideas, you have to develop them. And if you develop them, at some point, you have to kind of refer back to the beginning to round it off. What I just described is something that's not that far from sonata form. Exactly. That was yeah. You know, what he's saying is that in a piece of music, I mean, not an opera where there's a story, but in a piece of abstract music, a lot of those principles, again, correctly understood, they're not so much traditions as they're just standard ways of dealing with problems. So, I mean, if I write a symphony, I'm not necessarily thinking of putting it in sonata form, but some of the big movements will inevitably end up resembling something like a sonata form, just because the same necessities that created sonata form are there if I'm trying to write a big piece for orchestra, let's say. Mm-hmm. So, and that's, and I don't think of those forms as molds to pour stuff into. I think it was just like, they give me a sort of general feeling. For a student, they're useful because at the beginning, when you've never written a big piece, it kind of gives you something to hold on to at the beginning. Eventually, you start saying, okay, I could change this. Well, this is the transition, but I'm going to make it go over there. And, you know, you sort of take off on your own, just the way Brahms and Bruckner and Mahler, all those people did exactly the same thing. You know, they eventually, you start realizing that they started off with sort of an idea and then, okay, this actually be better if I did it a different way. So they do it a different way or they play around with it until they finally get to the point like, Okay, now this is what works. So as I don't see a contradiction between knowing the standard forms if you understand them correctly, as opposed to just they're sterile. Like it's like the parallel fifths thing. If you think of it as a God-given rule, then it's kind of dumb. You think mm-hmm. of sonata forms like you've got to do that. On the other hand, if you think of it as like it makes some sense, like okay, contrast of ideas, transition, development, uh, rounding off. I mean, you know, that those are principles that are not particularly sort of weird or exotic, and they happen to apply very well to big pieces. So a lot of big pieces will have something resembling that. It doesn't require it. There are other possibilities. But, I mean, it's not unlikely. If you do a large piece, it might end up resembling something like that. Mm. So 
is there. And in the same way that even Beethoven, I mean, Beethoven wrote dozens of sonata forms that no two of them are the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. it depends on ideas. You know, it depends. Again, if you have, if your ideas are very, let's say, very dramatic and very lyrical, that's going to give you a different form if you have one idea that's playful and the other one that's dramatic. So mm-hmm. the ideas really eventually give you the form. I mean, Schenberg was right about that. He says in his book, you know, the, the form comes out of the ideas. It's not something you sort of decide in advance. So, again, for an experienced composer, not for a beginner, but for an experienced composer, at a certain point, you're going to start clicking on all kinds of things. It's like you have a mental bookcase and it's filled with books. Yeah. So you start, this, at this point, I need, I need to recapitulate something. At this point, I need to make a transition. And then, you, you know, the technique you already know, you start applying it there. Yeah. The result may not be a classical form, but what you've learned in classical form is there. It's, it's, if anybody knows how to look, it's there. Yeah, I, I think it was uh, was it it was Cage that said the most important thing he learned from Schoenberg was that the the macro should be reflected in the micro. You know, he he was saying yeah. that the there has to be a relationship between the music on a big level and the same essence or the same uh, element must be found as well in the micro. You know and you know, doesn't actually have to fall into a certain structure or, or like, you know, like bar numbers or, or the amount of bars. You know, there's a lot of speculation about, about Debussy and his, um, that, that he adhered to the golden ratio or, or things like that, you know. But it's, it's the idea that, that somewhere in the music, it has to be reflected um, like, a, like a tree is, if you break a little yeah. branch off the tree, it's a smaller version of the, like a fractal type thing, you know? I would, I would, I would put it a little differently. I, I would say that the big form has to naturally grow out of the, out of the ideas. Like I said, depending on your ideas, the form can't be the same. You know, if, if you mm-hmm. start off, say, with an idea that's very dramatic, well, probably you're going to have a very dramatic climax to the piece. If your original idea, let's say, is funny, the climax won't have the same character. So it, it's not so much that one has to be derived from the other, is that there is a connection between the way you set up the form and the kind of idea you have at the start of the piece. If that's not the case, like I say, it's what they call jello molds. You know, you're just pouring pouring in the liquid and you, it's going to come out the same jello. But you know, good mm-hmm. things don't have the same. So in that sense, yeah, I mean, the, the small the stuff you start with. I mean, you can't obviously start writing the whole piece. You have to start off with one bar. You know, you can't write five hundred bars without starting with one bar. So yep. when you open your sketches, you're I mean, one of the things that was good when I studied with Diamond, he's the first three months, he said, we're only going to work on sketches. I would bring in sketches, and he would say, oh, let's see what this can become in the course of the piece. So it got me into that habit of thinking, okay, what's the potential of this idea? Or what could this become over time? And then, then you start seeing, oh, yeah, well, this idea could lead to this, this, and that. I could combine it with this. So the, the form does grow out of the ideas eventually. And, and are you, do you still sketch now? Is it... Is it- Oh, yeah. Um, is it pencil and paper or are you sketching straight into Sibelius or Finale? Sometimes it's pencil and paper, sometimes it's the piano, sometimes I scratch into Dorico, whatever. It, it varies. I mean, it depends on the idea. You know, for details of complicated harmony, I need to hear it. You know, I, yeah. I can hear most of harmony in my head, but I can't always deal something really, hear something really complicated. So I might play it on the piano. But, you know, mm-hmm. it depends what it is. But I mean, it's, I certainly start with a sketch. I mean, Except for the simplest pieces, like you generally don't start with the whole thing. You know, it's just mm-hmm. there's so much to fill up to fill out an orchestra piece. Nobody starts by knowing all the orchestration and all the harmony and all the texture. You know, it's just too much at one shot. To write a melody, you might want a bass line. You might add a little detail, like a trumpets or something. But I mean, you sketch you sketch what's obvious. And the rule of sketching is, if you don't know it right away, forget about it. Just keep going. And then you know, mm-hmm. 
but the details will come back. So definitely I sketch. I, honestly, I wouldn't know how to compose without starting from a sketch because I can't write a complete piece in every way from measure one to the end. It's just there's too much stuff to figure out. Again, mm -hmm. Unless it's a short piece. I mean, sure, two-page piano project, but anything serious, you start up. Sometimes sketching, sometimes the ideas that come are easier than other ones. You know, sometimes you sketch an idea and like right away you have a great idea. Sometimes like, eh, that's not so hot. You might have to sort of scratch it for a few days before you get to something that really makes you happy. Okay. I think sketching, like Mementes, I mean, most great composers, if you look at their sketches, you can see it didn't all start off wonderful. Mm -hmm. And your sketches, are you, do you limit yourself to uh, a certain amount of staves or um, do, would you sketch? Like, I think John Williams uses nine, doesn't well, he? I mean, if, if you're sketching a very complicated orchestral passage, it might be that. But I mean, some mm -hmm. parts of the sketch might be one stave, some might be three. So it depends on the kind of music you're writing. I mean, you know, remember I said the sketching has several different stages. The first stage usually is only one staff or maybe two. You know, just getting ideas down a bar or two. Once you get to elaborating them, you might find yourself needing more. Because that's when you're starting to think, okay, what about, it's okay, I guess I put the middle part in the oboe. So then you need another staff. So, I mean, the sketching sort of gradually builds up. You know, it gets more and more rich as you go along. You know, until you eventually get your, eventually you're filling in the fine details of the orchestration later on. So I would say as you go along, it, it builds, it, it gets more rich and more complicated as you go along. Right. So you you don't have a a sort of like a um, a fixed sort of methodology that you would work through when approaching a piece, like I mean, preparing, planning, and then before you even start putting pencil to paper you know there's no uh no. you go okay well uh, maybe you might have a time a rough amount of time that you would think or uh, yeah. you might think you know it's going to be a what particular style or something and then you would go through the the motions or is it a different experience every time uh, well up to the point i mean i i since you know at my age i'm 67 so i mean i pretty much have a style i have my own voice mm -hmm. so i mean you know i'm not going to write a piece that's going to resemble nothing i ever did in any way other hand, you know, when I started a piece, I started up with the sketches. And obviously, you know, if I want to write, let's say, a concerto for violin, it's going to be a different kind of sketch from writing a piece for band. You know, not going to be mm -hmm. the same idea. So in that sense, the, the, the ensemble you're writing for, the duration of the piece, the difficulty, I mean, those are sort of conditions in advance. After that, then you sort of, you know, you start, you know, was, again, if I'm writing a piece for band, I'm not going to do a lot of sketching for the string section because bands don't have string sections. Okay, so... Mm -hmm make some kind of limits. But I mean, for the most part, just I'll start writing ideas within the framework I have and then sort of eventually try and get to the point where I like the ideas. The first ideas might be great or they might not. And, you know, you just keep going until you find something you like. And uh, t t let's let's move on uh, and we'll, we'll talk about, you know, the a little bit more the nuance of, of your music and um, how you view something like, like harmony or the, the use of harmony and um, you know, we talked about the rules governing, you know, counterpoint and structure and things. And obviously the same sort of rules apply when you're talking about harmony. But, um, we, we you know, we've, we've lived through, through Schoenberg and, uh, you know, the, the, the rejection of tonality and, you know, talk to me about how you would, how you view harmony and tonality and how you view, um, Shostakovich, for example, and how he approaches harmony and, uh, you know, how you use harmony yourself? Yeah, okay. So, I mean, in teaching, for example, like I have a YouTube series on modern harmony. In teaching, I try to cover reasonably comprehensively. So, if, for example, in teaching, as an example, I have a, a lesson about using cluster chords. Now, in my personal music, I detest clusters. I hate them, so I never use them in my own music. 
But as a professional, I should know how to teach them because some students really like it. So since once you get to be a pro, I mean, it also assumes you've you listened to quite a lot of music. So in listening to a lot of music, I mean, and writing a lot of music, at a certain point it becomes clear that if you have any kind of personality as a composer, you have preferences. Like I said, I happen to hate clusters. I like certain kinds of complicated chords with certain kinds of spacings. You know, in orchestration, there are certain kinds of combinations that I like and others I don't like. In other words, my style eventually became a sort of a synthesis of the things I like in counterpoint, in harmony, in texture, in orchestration, in form. I mean, I have my own preferences and all those things, and those, the combination is mine. Just like when you listen to Shostakovich or Brahms or Prokofiev, usually you can recognize them after a few bars because Brahms likes certain kinds of harmony and certain kinds of rhythm, and Shostakovich likes something else. In other words, you recognize that's, that's their voice. In the same way, I've listened to your voice. Okay, that's Connor's voice. In other words, it's not so much, uh, it's just, it's a result of my preferences. That, you know, those preferences have a certain amount of range, like not every piece is the same. But if you went through all my music, you'd find certain things in common. You know, the kinds of I enjoy, you know, tend to be rather different from other, let's, let's say, Shostakovich, which I don't like the same kind of harmony necessarily. You know, I like it in his pieces. So my voice, I would say, and again, this is something I worked up really with my teachers at Juilliard, my voice is sort of my preferences. And eventually, if you're a real composer, they come together in something that makes some kind of sense. And that becomes what you're going to favor in your own music. But again, since I've taught other people and taught courses, I mean, I can teach things that I don't use myself, you know, because just other people might be interested. But, you know, my own preferences have certain, you know, I tend to not to like harmony that's extremely chromatic all the time. I tend to like harmony that has a contrast between a passage that's quite diatonic and then something very dense. I find if it's if it's super chromatic all the time, it gets kind of gray after a while. I like the feeling that it's dense and then you get something very sort of clean and open and you know, I like those kind of contrasts. So that means my harmony is sometimes fairly simple and diatonic. Sometimes it's more complicated, but it's never super complicated, traumatic, nonstop all the time. That's not my thing. Okay? And the same thing is true of orchestration and other things. There are certain things that I happen to like or not like. For example, in orchestration, I really don't like heavily doubled sounds all the time. And a person who always has the clarinet and the violas you know, doubling each other and the violin is dumbing the oboe, not my thing. I don't like it. So you won't find a lot of nonstop doubling in my pieces. I, you know, I try to find other ways to do those things. But though, you know, those are my differences, and the same thing is true about musical forms and so on. So every one of those things, after a while, you sort of get certain kind of pref. I mean, one thing that I like, for example, formally, is what I call interruptions. I was instead of finishing something and dying down, and then you start something else, and you finish it, and you die back. And you something else, you fail. I like sometimes you have an idea, and then all of a sudden there's interruption. So that keeps you in suspense. You, know, you, you want to know what's going to go on. In the same way as if you, know, if you read a murder mystery or something, I mean, the most important rule is don't give the answer till the end. You, know, you don't tell, don't tell in a murder mystery reader who did it in chapter two because there's no reason to keep, going, read, keep reading it after that. So in the, the music has to sort of keep you in suspense. And one way to do that is an interruption. And you don't pick it up again until later on. You interrupt now, but maybe, maybe later on, five minutes later in the piece, you come back to it. That keeps the listener sort of interested and curious. So that that's happens to be something I particularly like formally. Not everybody likes that, but that's part of my style. So somebody looks at my pieces. Most of my big pieces have some kind of interruption at some point. Different. I mean, there's other things too, but that's one of them. So all these dimensions, the craft has sort of become, at this point, you know, my own personal preference. It's just the way it does for Brahms or Shostakovich or you know, uh, you know, Dutilleux or some other good composer. I think it's the same thing. So that, that's how I see it, you know, myself. 
you know, I have my, I like contrapuntal textures, so I use a lot of counterpoint, but it doesn't mean that's the right way to be. It just means that's what I, that's what turns me, makes, makes my voice that way. But again, that's actually a lot of training. I mean, you can't decide that before you can do, if you're not at ease writing counterpoint, there's no point deciding that you don't like writing counterpuntal textures. If you can't do it, you know, the reason I don't do it is not because I don't know how, <laughs> okay? It's because I don't like it. I know how to do cluster harmony. I just don't like it. Okay, but I, I had to do what I could. So, you know, that, that's, I think it's really a question of finding your own voice eventually, finding what's you in the music you write as opposed to what's your standard stuff. Now, some people just become sort of good at writing a style. There are people who can make good pastiche Mozart. You know, that would be a good musicologist. They're not necessarily composers, but they've learned some useful stuff. But they don't necessarily have a voice of their own. That's not bad, but I mean, I wouldn't call them a real composer if they have no voice of their own. And you know, um, when you're when you're thinking, when you're when you're sketching out harmony, or when you're trying, when you if say you've got a top line or a, a melody, and you're yeah. trying to work out work out what kind of progression you're going to have, yeah. um, are you are you thinking, or, or would you have? I, I guess it's the kind of the same idea as as the rules, but um, you know, would you be thinking ab- about chord relationships and harmonic? Um, principles that have been that have been kind of established, you know, like your your five ones and and your modulations, you know that 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 you you know if you were teaching somebody, you would say, you know, here is the correct way to modulate. You have to signpost with, say, you're going from C and you're modulating to G. You introduce the F sharp, and that tells the listener that that you're modulating and that there's a change coming. Would you would you think that way, or would you would you be? You said you liked interruptions, so. You know, um, would there would there be some sort of like rejection of that practice? No, I mean it would, could be both. Sometimes, I mean, if, again, if if those things are properly explained, I mean, modulation is really a problem in transition. You can make sudden mm-hmm. transitions, you can make smooth transitions, and in fact, a good composer should be able to do both. You know, if if you have a large piece, you want to have occasionally a sort of sudden bump, but you don't want to have a bump every three minutes. Okay, so you have some transitions that are very smooth, others are less, and technically. A good composer should know how to do those things. It's exactly the same principle that determines the kinds of modulations. You need to be able to do both. So same thing holds you know, in any department. I mean, if you know the reasons for what you're doing, usually you'll find a way to apply them in your own, in your own, sort of, uh, in your own style. I, I would say it's, I think of it more like that. Uh, mm-hmm. So in so terms of harmony, I think that any style of harmony involves, let's say, varieties of harmonic tension. You don't want the same level of tension on the line because it's boring. So it involves some kind of resolution. So I mean, at one point, I, you know, I have a in my online harmony course. I mean, at one point, I have a little thing about general principles of harmony on my website too. The idea is just what can we say about harmony that's true pretty much of any style. And one thing is, harmony can give you a difference between extreme tension, mild tension, no tension. Use those degrees. Don't write a whole piece with nothing but extremely tense harmony or extremely dull harmony or extremely smooth harmony. You, you need variety. What you need in the piece will depend on that. So in that sense, I'm doing what I learned, but in the sense of transferring principles, not copying specific results. It, it seems to me that that you that you are you are very much um, aware of, but not necessarily adhering to um, the 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 traditions the, the that have come forth. You know that you might be aware. Oh, I'm kind of writing something that's a little bit. In the classical style, like you know, you're you're primarily focused on one, three, five, and then oh, okay, I'm moving into more of a romantic 
type um, passage here where the orchestrations become a little bigger. The, 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 the texture and the thing has become a little richer and the harmonies also become a little richer. And, uh, oh, okay, now I'm, I'm moving firmly into the 20th century where the harmonies, you know, almost fallen away where it can't no longer be described as, as tonal anymore. You know, would, would, would that be a kind of an accurate description? Not exactly, because when you're writing any kind of combination of lines that produce harmony, certain lines are more prominent the other than others. The, the obvious example, the melody and the bass are easier to follow than the ones in the middle of mm-hmm. the things. So, I mean, if I write a melody, the next step is usually going to be I'm going to write a bass line. And the bass line, depending on the situation, it could be very dissonant, very constant. It'll determine what I've got. And then I'll be feeling it. But I mean... The two things you need to transfer from learning harmony are bass lines and voice leading. Those two things apply to pretty much any kind of harmony that makes any kind of sense at all, just because they're very audible. If, if you, your voice leading makes no sense, it's going to sound like the notes come from nowhere. The notes are not led to. And if, they, if you don't pay attention to the bass line, it's going to sound arbitrary, which is not my idea. So it's more like, I mean, I can do various things, but I mean, I'm starting off what are the most obvious things I can hear? Let's work on those first and then refine it from there. I mean, one of my really big principles of composing and teaching is like start from what you hear. Don't start, like, you know, a lot of analysis starts from what you see. You know, they say, ah, the theme on you know, page 27, that's the same thing as the theme on page two, inverted and retrograde at half speed. Nobody will ever notice that. That's like totally far-fetched. So I'm interested in is what, is the, what do the listener notice? I, I, I'm a big believer in what's, what does the listener notice right away? Do that first. Get the subtlety afterward. You don't start off with stuff that sounds good in theory, but I mean, when you actually do it, nobody can hear it. So for me, it's the healing. And what I hear, if the harmony is, makes any sense, it's got to have a bass line. It's got to have voice fitting. Otherwise, it's going to sound like it comes from nowhere and the voices do, any, no, do sort of anything at all. So it's more like... Now, the result might be in some situations much more complex harmony than others, as long as it's led into logically in the piece and it doesn't sound like you just turn two pages at once. I think that's okay. You see, knowing the repertoire, I'm aware that oh yeah, this this sounds a little more like you know like Shostakovich than it sounds like Brahms. And I you know I have my own, my own style doesn't sound really like Brahms, but I mean I don't I don't think of it sort of in date related terms that way. Put it that way. Okay, and. Uh something that just just uh entered my mind there and it's something that that you know i i would say that i um uh i'm aware of but not necessarily uh comfortable with um writing um fugal passages i guess um you know i'm aware of how they're achieved and 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 what what makes something fugal um but it's the execution is still pretty elusive because it's it's an extremely difficult thing to to get right, I guess. Um, you know, so if you're writing, um, you know, a, a passage that's that it's maybe not a full fugue or a fugetta, but um, you know, would you would you be following the, the the structure of of you know the subject and the entries of the subject and things like that, or uh, would you again would you again context depending and and kind of go okay, well, it's kind of like a, a pseudo fugue, and so I'm not going to really follow the the rules exactly. Or you know, uh, would you would you be very mindful about what you're doing in that kind of context? Well, first of all, fugue is really the, the culmination of counterpoint study. Once again, if it's well taught. You don't learn a bunch of rules. You learn there's a certain ways of proceeding that are good ways to develop your material. 
And it's sort of, there's a lot of things you can do. In fact, there are no two fugues by Bach that have the same form. None. Zero. Okay? Like every one of the modulations are the same. There's the school fugue, everything's the same, but that's for beginners. But I mean, Bach, basically the fugue is determined by the subject. A serious, slow, slow subject will have a very different form than a fugue with a very playful subject. So, I mean, in that sense, it's the same story. The, few, the form is the development of the idea. So, you know, I mean, I might write a fugal passage because I'm not written enough fugues that I'm at ease with it, if it fits, but I'm not thinking about following any particular recipe because there isn't any, really. I mean, Bach writes, like I say, no, no two Bach fugues are the same in terms of the details. You just do what, whatever the subject needs. And obviously, if it's part of a larger piece, it's not going to be a standalone fugue. I mean, I have written standalone fugues, but I mean... It, it, Again, it's partly a matter of understanding the tradition in larger terms rather than just conventions. You really understand Bach does this at this place. You're learning like, okay, because the idea is like this, it's going to lead to a different place from a different kind of subject. I mean, I, you know, when I teach fugue, I give specific examples of two Bach fugues that say with totally different subjects and show how the form is a result of the kind of subject he's using. It's not something he decides fairly. So in the same way, my form is going to be the result of the ideas I have. Fugal passages might be one you develop it, but it's not that there are a bunch of rules of fugue. It's a matter of like that for this kind of thing is the best way to develop a certain kind of texture. And fugue is good for learning to develop one single idea. But how you do it depends on the context and on your own style. It's a very um, well considered point of view, I guess. I've I've never really had a a composition teacher that's that's contextualized. Um, the kind of nuance of why things were done that way, uh, in such in such a, a, a such a clarity, um, which is you know it's really interesting how you how you think about the the functionality of your music in relation to established forms and how you take from them, um, what allows you to 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 do your your own thing. I uh, one thing that I say to most of my students in lesson number one. What's the most important word for learning? Never mind music, learning anything. And the answer is why. If you don't understand why you do something, you're just learning blindly. So pretty much anything that makes any sense, and if you have a good teacher, should be able to explain to you why is this of any relevance. Um, it's, I've discovered to my surprise that a lot of teachers don't seem to consider that important. But I mean, in general, in my life, and certainly in music, I'd much rather know why I'm doing something rather than just follow somebody's orders. And the more you why, the more you can transfer it into other areas. So, I mean, all these classical things, to the extent that they make sense, have a good why. And if you can explain it, then you can transfer it to something else. Like I said, the parallel fifth thing is really a way of avoiding holes in the texture. But that's the why. <coughs> in a different kind of texture, maybe fifths aren't the problem. You know, it might be thirds. But if you have a texture that's totally dissonant all the time, thirds do the same thing that parallel fifths do in classical music. They make a hole. You'd be treating thirds the same way, but it's a matter of understanding why. You're avoiding a hole in the texture. Okay, Alan. Well, I, I'm aware of your time, you know, and I don't, I don't want to uh, eat up the rest of your afternoon. So um, just um, talk to me very, very quickly about your, your online presence and the work that you've published, because I think I think it's extremely beneficial what you're doing. And, um, you know, you mentioned Thomas Gross as well, and the 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 orchestration platforms online and you know they're they're all wonderful communities where where people can um you know ask questions and get some feedback and things but um you you've got a, a very very you know well produced and 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 really really well informed content you know you go from from composition or counterpoint 101 and you take them right up to 
to fugues and things. So talk to me a little bit uh, about your online presence and the work that you've published. And, you know, maybe some uh, some listeners might might be interested in, in following and maybe making contact with you after listening to this podcast. Yeah, I was I was uh, I was really pleased a couple of months ago when I got a notice from YouTube that my channel had reached ten thousand followers, and now it's up to eleven. So I think that's and the basic principle when I'm putting stuff online. I mean, when you teach individually, of course, you set the program according to what the student needs. So every student is different. But in these online things, my basic principle is I want to put stuff up there that is not easily available elsewhere. I was the reason I put a modern harmony course up was that nobody else has really done one online that's of any significance. Same thing for the counterpoint. I mean, there's a lot of counterpoint stuff, but then it's not done in a way where people understand the whys and the, and the reasons. Uh, now I'm doing analysis for composers. And it was, I'm trying to give people a point of view that you can't just find in some other book easily. You know, if somebody wants to teach basic tonal harmony, I'm not going to bother putting an online course about that because there are some pretty good books that do that already. So my point is just be, what can I cover you know, based on my experience and this particular approach of mine where I like to explain reasons for things? What can I cover that is not easily available elsewhere and might be useful? So that pretty much is directed and, and continues to direct what I'm putting online. I want to put stuff up that you know is useful to people and it's not just doubling what somebody else already did, you know, very well. That's the basic principle. And since I have I over the time I've developed this point of view of like no rules without reasons, trying to explain how things connect to other things in more contemporary music. That's basically what I'm trying to do. It, it seems like I mean, it's surprising, but it's it's rarer than I would have thought, you know. I mean, I, I'm mm-hmm. surprised how many even professionals sort of never think about, well, why should I do it this way? And they're actually, if it's, if it's, if it's good, there is a reason. It's not just because, well, people did it that way. You know, that's not enough a reason today. But a lot of people don't seem to think about the reason. So, uh, you know, I like to put, up, put that up there. And it seems, a lot of people seems to, seem to find it useful. So, you know, on, so on the YouTube channel, I mean, I have all this pedagogical stuff. And, of course, I have a lot of my own music also. So, you know, that's basically it, just trying to give some stuff that isn't easily available elsewhere. Yeah, I, I remember when I was doing my uh, my master's thesis, I I was looking at uh, the work of Conlon Nancaro, and it was almost impossible to find anything. You know, I I went um, I was looking at Tom Johnson as well. I'm not sure if you're familiar with with Tom Johnson, the the American kind of um, mathematical algorithmic composer, like kind of kind of like Conlon Nancaro, but um, you know, just trying to find um, works that. Or not works even like you know, um, and anybody talking about yeah, it's like you know I just had to you know keep buying my lecturers coffee for them to talk to me about it, <laughs> um, you know. But it's 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 really there. There's a gap in the market there for for those kind of questions or those things to be to be to be addressed. Right, and in, in the case of my stuff, I mean it's it's more general than that because I'm not talking about specific composers so much as like, mm-hmm. it's like ideas. Most, you know, you can't, nobody who's ever composed doesn't need at some point to write a transition. So if you don't have a transition, and, and to my amazement, when I was preparing for my, my, you know, composition book that was published last year, I was astonished to learn that there is no composition textbook that seems ever to have been written, which discusses how to make a transition. It's wacko. They might discuss transition in a sonata form, but the actual principle of how do you connect one idea to the next, to my astonishment, nobody ever seems to have discussed it. Well, obviously, Beethoven and Brahms knew how to do it because they do it really well and they do it many ways. So that was, you know, again, I, that's why I have a, pra- a chapter called Connecting. It's all about how to write transitions. So, you know, 
some things that you think would just be totally, almost idiotically obvious for some reason. It's like sort of the secrets of the guild, you know, and even though do this stuff all the time, nobody ever seems to talk about it. So I just figured, well, you know, if I've, if I've learned a lot about transitions, I can sort of explain some of it. And again, I didn't invent this stuff. I'm just sort of saying, well, if I look at a lot of Beethoven and Brahms and Wagner and so on, gee, these guys are really good at transitions, so maybe I should learn how to do it. And, you know, they, I can, but they didn't write a book about it. So as it turns out, there's so much stuff that nobody – I also never saw a book, a book about how to, make, how to make a really effective ending. That's another thing. Any book has a good ending. Why does nobody ever talk about how to end? It's just it's wacko. You know, so, I mean, business teachers talked a little bit about it. So I sort of at one point I thought, oh, yeah. When I was studying with Elliot Carter, at one point he said, don't start a piece with a long diminuendo. I sort of went home and I never thought of that. And then I started thinking about why. And it sort of got me in like, yeah, in effect, you know, anyway, left me to a whole lot of other stuff. So this kind of stuff, is, it's just astonishing, the stuff that, nobody, that nobody's ever said. You know, you'd think it would be obvious. You know, it just so it makes it easy in a way because there's so much stuff to say, and it isn't super refined stuff that only one person with a doctorate will get. It's like if you ask somebody about the climax of the beast music, that tends to be something they remember. Little, I've never seen a composition book talking about how to make a climax either. It's, again, it's just it's 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 weird. It's just very bizarre, but it's true. So you know, it was just the room was open to to write, let's say, a chapter about how to make a climax in order to teach that. So it, in a way, it's easy and. And it's nourished by just the music I love. So, uh, just just to finish up here, then, um, where can people find you online? And you know, how how can people uh, get in touch? Or is there any? Uh, do you do like Q and As, like live sessions, where people can chime in some questions, and you give them you kind of have a ranking system or something that votes the questions up, and then you might address those questions, you know, at a later date or in real time. There are three ways. People can follow my YouTube channel, which they get access to all the pedagogy and my own music. Obviously, mm -hmm. that's not the place to ask questions. They get whatever they want. Then they can go to my website, allenbelkinmusic.com. Okay? And on the website, there's a lot of free pedagogical material in PDF format, you know, like about counterpoint, about harmony, and so on. So that's a second source. Okay? And unlike the YouTube channel, it's not an auditory source. It's a written source. Okay. Then I'm also on Facebook. I got a lot of people sort of friend requests from people who just want to learn stuff. And the last thing is people, you know, I do a lot of lesson teaching by Skype or in person if they're in the same part of the world. So, you know, I don't tend to do Q and A's, but I mean, a lot of people come for, it could be one lesson, could be 10 lessons by Skype. And then we can talk about it. You know, it's occasionally, I will sometimes contribute to orchestration online or online forums. But usually, if somebody has a question and it's not a trivial, you know, one, a one-sentence answer, usually they're better off contacting me by email, alanbiltonmusic.com. Uh, you know, that's my email address at, at gmail.com. Um, you know, and then you know, if it's a trivial question, I'll answer it. If it's more complicated, I'll suggest we arrange a lesson or a discussion or something. Okay. Well, and is there anything uh, interesting in the works at the moment, or is there any? Uh like things that you're you've got kind of coming down the pipeline that you would maybe want to mention or let people know about yeah i just finished a double concerto for violin and cello it's not going to be performed right away soon but that's just just about off hot off the press and the i'm doing now the series i'm doing on uh, on youtube is called analysis for composers and the very next lesson coming in a couple of weeks is going to be out going to be about criteria what makes a good composition that's the next you'll know, be the subjects following on that so there was less but that course is paid for by patreon so like people who 
you know, who are willing to contribute five bucks or something that helps, you know, to pay for the expenses of the course. Mostly it's not for me, it's for the technician who does all the, the, the audio work and so on. And uh, so, but you know, that, that's, that's going on. And there's, you know, I have a list of topics a page long that I want to cover in there. So, you know, and there might be another book in the works, but I don't want to say too much about it yet because nothing's definite. Well, Alan, thanks so much for taking the time and coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It was very insightful and interesting. And maybe we can follow up after the next book's published. Okay, sure. Okay, so very good. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, take care. You too.